0: Sentence. And uh, though familiar, I, I trust it'll stir our hearts and challenge us in uh, different levels as we prepare to observe the Lord's ordinance. And uh, so as we do so, we want to do exactly what it commends us to. We'll read here in a little while in First Corinthians chapter 11 as we're encouraged to remember the Lord's death and commemorate it. And so we want to do that tonight and uh, we want to go back to that scene outside the walls of Jerusalem. For a few moments tonight, we want to revisit it and gaze upon all that took place. So Matthew chapter twenty-seven, Matthew chapter twenty-seven. In fact, we're just going to look primarily at one verse. We know the story well, and so for sake of time, I don't want. We won't read through it all. We'll know it well. We'll certainly reference it. But in verse fifty-four, in fact, just the first part, we're going to look at here uh, in just a moment. I want to read that. Before we do, let me encourage you a couple prayer requests updates. We had sent out an email concerning Mary Hobson. This is Miss Janet Correll's sister-in-law. She did pass away, and so I want you to be praying for that family. Pray for Miss Janet and the family. They'll be having a service and things this week, and so just pray for the family of Mary Hobson. Uh, Miss Janine James, Bill and Janine have attended and passed, and so that is uh, Miss Janine's mother, uh, Mary Hobson is. So just pray for that family, and then also ask you to continue to pray for Sarah Crook. She had her surgery on Friday. Her outpatient, everything went well, so we're grateful for that. Just pray for healing, and Lord, would just continue to bless her in that way. Appreciate it so very much. Let's read Matthew chapter 27. We'll read verse 50 just the first part of the verse. Notice what it says. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done now let's stop there we want to look at the site that is described just by these two simple statements it's this little phrase before us the first part of the earth here's these soldiers that are stationed there and certainly for security and other things and they were the escort for these criminals and so forth and uh, maybe some other helpers per se whatever the case may be but here they are the centurion too that is described in the verse they're all standing around taking it in they have done their job, and so they've nailed Jesus and the thieves to the crosses. And now they're just standing back watching. Maybe they're sitting idly by. And you have to uh, kind of wonder, goodness, uh, here they are. They're watching probably with a cold, hard cruelty, a hardness of heart because they've done this before. They're watching the agony and the torture and some of them even participating in breaking of the legs and jabbing a spear in the side. And here they are. They're, they're just watching. That's what the Bible says. They're sitting there. They're watching. They're taking it all in and maybe even participating. This was probably routine for them. Archaeological finds have told us that the Romans were very good at crucifying people. They did it frequently. And so there's been many remains and things found of crosses and the apparatuses they used and so forth. And so it, it seemed like this is something they did often. So these men, this is probably routine for them. They were very, could you imagine, they were probably very likely indifferent to what was going on. The suffering of these men, the the almost inhuman hanging uh, there on the cross and and all that they suffered and all that they would had gone through. But these men had seen it before, and I don't want you to miss that. These men sitting there watching had seen it before, but this time, this time there was something different. You see, something had happened during these hours upon which Christ hung upon the cross that radically affected the thinking and likely the life of the centurion who was overseeing the execution. And honestly, to a degree, not just the centurion, but these men who, this was routine. They've been to many a crucifixion. This is just another job, another day that they had to do. And in their cruelty, and their indifference, they've seen this uh, brutalized man hanging on a a cross before. Yet a verse tells us that he, uh, along with the others, watched and took it all in. And you remember what it says? They feared greatly. Notice the rest of the verse. Notice it, verse 54. We pick up, we read, in those things that were done, and they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now take it in. Let's put ourselves there. Seasoned veteran soldiers, a centurion who, who'd probably seen death and war and fighting, and here he is, he's sitting, watching, taking it all in. And they are moved to fear. They have probably faced many an enemy, likely, and they're moved with fear. They had probably crucified many a criminal, some out of their minds, some claiming to be God, some claiming to be all kinds of things, a prophet, and some claiming to come back and haunt them. I mean, they'd probably seen it all. But something happened. Something took place this day. This was not the normal, the routine. Something had affected them. Something had not only grabbed their attention, but something had revolutionized their thinking. Just a, a few moments before, this, just a few minutes before, and hours before, they were walking these three criminals to the crucifixion, to Golgotha, to Calvary, and something changed from just viewing them as more criminals, more scum of the earth that need to be put to death, and now they stand looking up, gazing upon this one in the middle, or wherever his location was, and the fact was they look at him and they say this, surely this was the Son of God. You talk about radically changed. You talk about being impacted. Perhaps, perhaps the Lord's humility and love displayed in a willingness to forgive even his crucifiers. And those that had condemned him touched the hearts of these tough, cruel men. Perhaps the compassion of Christ, displayed in His loving care for His own mother and making provision for her after His death, maybe it seized the heart of that centurion who himself was a son with a mother. Perhaps, perhaps our Lord's concern from His comrades on the crosses, a fellow sufferer displayed in His promise of heaven to the penitent thief, Maybe that stirred the emotions of the centurion. Perhaps it was the obvious absence of the cursing, the profanity that most men hanging there would hurl at those who had put them there. Uh, The lack of please for mercy and please let me go. Please let me come down. Maybe the lack of that caused the centurion to behold this Christ with wonder and speculation. Perhaps, perhaps it was our Lord's confident trust, his peaceful resolution hanging there on the cross, his calm commitment of his soul into the care of his God that moved the heart and the mind of the centurion. May I remind you, they stood by and watched. They took it all in. Maybe, Maybe it was the violent revolt of nature all around that accompanied the death of Christ which produced a radical change in the mind of that centurion. May I remind you that the sun revolted and refused to shine upon the event in which the devil thought that he had extinguished the very light of the world. The rocks revolted. They shook violently the earthquake at the mere thought of sinful man putting to death the one true rock of ages. The graves revolted and turned out dead believers, saints, at the ironic attempt to take the life of the only one who can give life. My friend, it is my belief that all of that put together It was an unparalleled assembly of irrefutable evidence that the one who hung on the cross, the one now dead with blood and water, uh, coming from the pierced side, was indeed the promised Son of God, the Redeemer, the Savior, slain to take away the sins of the world. Oh, the lessons that Calvary teaches I would say the centurion and and those men, other guards, and those people gathered there were some of Calvary's first students. They stood by, they watched, and they took it all in. In their response, surely this was the Son of God, the Redeemer, the Promised One. You see, we're gathered here tonight to gaze once more upon that scene. And we come face to face with many truths. But may I just share with you, remind you of three. The first would be this. Christ's death on Calvary teaches us the deserved condemnation of man's sin the deserved condemnation of man's sin. We know this to be true. There's no greater condemnation known to man than the simple reality that we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 makes that clear. Our sin has earned us a place in hell, the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, and nothing other than Christ's sacrifice, yea, the death and the shedding of his blood, as Hebrews 9.22 makes clear, can change that. It's an inescapable truth that Jesus Christ came to this world to die for the sins of guilty man. You see, condemned humanity was doomed by our despicable sin. We were condemned. His was a substitutionary death on the cross. He died under the penalty of sin for our sin. Uh, The doctrine has a, a name. It's penal substitution. It's reference to the reality of a, a penal law. It's reference to the law, the legal system, in the sense of the punishment that is meted out. That he took our punishment. Paul put it well when he wrote the church of Corinth. He said in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My friend, may I remind you tonight that as you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, we are remembering that my Savior, your Savior, became sin for us. And my friend, in that moment when we put our faith and trust in Him, that robe of righteousness that belonged to Christ was put on you and me. What a glorious truth that we exchanged our filthy rags for the robe of righteousness. He did that on the cross for you and I. He faced and took upon Him our condemnation. We rightly deserved it. We were condemned. And if we protest, if we as humans say, "Uh, we are pretty good, we're not that bad, we only need to point to Calvary because Calvary reveals the depth of human depravity as sinful people rejected the very personification of divine love. Herein is love. See, we didn't love him first. He first loved us. And Jesus Christ was the walking, talking, personification of divine love. Yet what did mankind do? They took him and they nailed him to a cross. The Messiah, the promised one, the deliverer, the redeemer, the anointed one, the Christ. They rejected the love of God in human form. John 3.16 says it well, doesn't it? For God so loved, he gave. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, He commended His love toward us. In what way? Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Even today, mankind rejects and refuses to uh, accept the perfect love of God that is offered through faith. We are all sinners. We are all condemned. And Jesus took that despicable sin that condemns each one of us upon Him at Calvary. Because there's no other means that could satisfy our debt. And would you rejoice with me tonight that though our sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Through faith and trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yet, how sad it is, as John 3 goes on to say, how sad it is that he that believeth not is condemned already. My friend, you know what, Calvary, what we recognize, we gaze upon tonight through this ordinance, what it reminds us of, it teaches us that there is a deserved condemnation of man's sin, our heinous, despicable sin. Number two, we see that Christ's death at Calvary teaches us that divine estimation of human worth. Hey, you know, it's a joy to ask a child, say, uh, you know, grab a little one, especially if you know what they're going to answer, you hope that you know You say to them, how much do you love me? And they go something like this. I love you this much. They spread their hands out with their face beaming with love and so forth. Can I just remind you, there could never be a greater, bigger, or more perfect display of the value that God puts on the soul of a human than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You don't know how much God values you? I'll just point you to Calvary. He loves you and values you to the degree that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you. Hey, the marriage supper of the Lamb that we are looking forward to, oh, that's going to be wonderful. The answers to prayer that we enjoy now, that, that's great. The grace we need and receive daily, that's tremendous. His mercy that is new in our lives every morning, oh, that's stupendous. I, I'm grateful for that. The thrills and delights of heaven that yet wait for us. Man, that blows my mind. But none of that compares to the display of God's love and evaluation of the worth of a human soul like Calvary does. That's where it originates. That's where it starts. What we commemorate now is the reality of the estimation, the divine estimation of the worth of a soul. Your soul. Mine. We look around us and we live in a world where life, human life, is cheap. Cheap. Little worth is given to each soul, each person. Humans are often depersonalized and degraded to the extent that they're considered little more than objects or material possessions. In fact, the reality is humans value other humans as little more than things that can be easily thrown away with little to no consideration or thought. But may I just simply put it this way, but in giving His Son for us, God taught us that in His sight, people are precious. Kid song, they are precious in His sight. And so they are. See, what Calvary teaches us is there is a divine estimation of the value, the worth, of each human. You see, to put it bluntly, if we as humans, as we see in the world around us, reject the biblical teaching of the worth and dignity of human life, we digress to simply being educated animals. That's why it's so crucial for you and I in Calvary and in God to see the, the value He puts on human life. See, when we consider Calvary, we learn the lesson that there of God's amazing estimation of human worth and the cruel suffering, the unimaginable agony that enveloped Jesus Christ there for us. We can't help but have our heart and our mind, our thinking changed about the value of a human soul while also standing in awe of God's love and estimation of mankind. My friend, when you and I take the cup that holds the bread and we take the cup that holds the juice tonight and as it is representative of what Christ did, would you ponder and consider my, how the God of heaven values human life? That indeed He would send His only begotten Son to die to save this, to save you, to save a condemned sinner, I how God in heaven must value you and I. You say why? My answer simply is this. I don't know other than the love of God. A redeemer. A God who loves exponentially. Who wanted to change our future. Our eternity. In his love and estimation of our worth. Number three lesson from Calvary the last. Christ's death at Calvary teaches us of the divine determination in the redemption plan. I love this. I, I, I have come back to this. We hit on it even last Wednesday a tad. But Calvary teaches us the divine determination in the redemption plan. You know what determination is? Determination is defined simply as a firmness of purpose, a resoluteness. So I ask this question. Do you know what's greater than determination? It's simply this, divine determination. If determination is defined as firmness of purpose and resoluteness, how in the world can you improve upon it? Well, you can improve upon it when God is determined about something. A divine determination. You say define it. Well, in defining it, let me describe it. You see, there's verses like the one we studied this past Wednesday in Romans 16. and also, like Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, that tells us that God's redemption plan, it was not a recent development in response to the failure of mankind. No, it's been his plan since the beginning of the world. As God in his omniscience, his infinite knowledge, was able to know that man would soon fall, And man's greatest need would be to be redeemed from his sin and the penalty of that sin. And God in his omniscience put a redemption plan into place before the very beginning of the world. See, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 18 puts it this way, or excuse me, 13 verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of this Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Oh, John is telling us this is the plan. <laughs> God has had this in place all along. May I put it this way, and aren't you thankful tonight that divine determination stuck to the plan? Aren't you grateful that we can be here tonight and commemorating, remembering, celebrating that Christ did indeed go to the cross? Let me put it this way. When Adam and Eve gave up what was basically heaven on earth to satisfy their lust, God stuck to the plan. When people in the days of Noah enjoyed a uniquely blessed earth but refused to acknowledge the God that gave it, God stuck to His gracious plan. When He gave His law and providentially blessed a people, a nation who were His, only to see them forsake Him for the things of this world, He graciously stuck to the plan. When the world as a whole pretty much communicated to Him, we can live without you, God in heaven graciously stuck to the plan. When He sent His Son to earth to save mankind and witnessed mankind rejecting Him and refusing Him, our God graciously stuck to the plan. When Christ died on the cross and he rose again, making salvation a reality, yet mankind stubbornly chose his own way and still does even today, denying Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior. May I encourage you, God still sticks to his plan. Can I ask you a very obvious and easily answered question? Did Jesus Christ come back yesterday? Hopefully, you're not saying, I hope not. See, the answer is no. He didn't. Why not? May I just tell you? So that the plan could play out according to God's will. And the reality is this what did that gain? You and I, I don't know about you, but I sure would like to be in heaven today. It didn't happen what's the blessing of that do you realize there could have been someone who got saved today the redemption plan still playing out his amazing long suffering is the means by which so many escape the perishing of hell even today someone has come to put their faith in Christ and this february 7th 2021 my goodness i'm so thankful that god has stuck to the plan Divine determination. Every day that Christ tarries is an opportunity for someone to enjoy what you and I now enjoy and celebrate tonight. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 make it clear. Uh, Peter is responding. Uh, it's about the day of the Lord. When is it gonna come? Has it happened? And he's he's trying to, hey, just settle down and he says this the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But is long suffering to us, Word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. May I tell you right now, I look at Calvary, and you know what I see? I see the most amazing divine determination. He, to, he's, he stuck to the plan. The plan is as alive as it has ever been. Christ has died on the cross and all that is yet to be done is the culmination of our salvation when we join God in heaven. And my friend, with every day that Christ tarries, praise be unto him, there's the opportunity for someone to get saved and partake. But Peter says in the very next verse, he says this, the day of the Lord will come. He describes it as a thief in the night, but the point is, The day of the Lord will come. It's coming. Why? Because God sticks to his plan. There's a divine determination that will see it through. And oh, what a joy that will be for you and I. Calvary has a lot to teach us. I believe the centurion was actually a very good student. He stood by and idly by. he watched the things that happened and he stood back and and tradition would say the centurion got saved. I, I would not go that far. I don't know. Only heaven will tell those details. But I do know this. His thinking was radically changed at Calvary. He got to the end of those events. He took it all in and he simply said this, truly, this was the son of God. And my friend, may I simply say this? the one that you and I have put our faith and trust in, truly, He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And tonight, we remember what He did. As we do, would I encourage you to think on these lessons? May they even formulate your prayer. As we enter into a time of prayer, as we prepare and pray, could I encourage you that it reminds us that we deserve, there is a deserved condemnation for our sins. Our sin condemned us. We were without hope. And then Jesus Christ came. Calvary happened. And Christ gave the ultimate sacrifice. Let's praise him for that tonight. Number two, it reminds us of the divine estimation of the worth of the human soul. Don't you think it would be good for us tonight as we observe the Lord's Supper to simply say, Father, thank you for loving me so much. Father, thank you for valuing the human soul so much that Christ would come and die on the cross. And last but not least, it reminds us of the divine determination revealed in the redemption plan. I'm so grateful and thankful that our God has not stopped his plan. But it was the plan from the beginning of the world, and it will be consummated when you and I join him in heaven. Grateful for that. I trust tonight as we observe the Lord's Supper that our hearts would be prepared, that we would express our gratitude as we are, that we'll come in humbleness of heart, gratitude of soul, that we'll come with confession of known sin, that we will come with a plea for assistance to forsake all evil and to live holy lives, and that you and I would remember that the shedding of the blood of Christ, the offering of His life for us, was what purchased eternal life for us. May God be praised. Father, I thank you for the truths of what we celebrate tonight. And Lord, as we enter into this, this Lord's Supper, I pray every heart will have been prepared that, Father, as we reflect on the truth and the reality of, uh, of this event, that, Father, our hearts would cry out to you in a humbleness and a gratitude in and in a lovingness that for what you have done for us, Father, may we not soon forget these lessons of Calvary. May we not soon forget what we have received from your hands. And Lord, tonight as we partake of the bread and the the cup, I, I pray that our hearts would be moved, be touched. And Father, beyond that, I pray that our hearts would be longing. Hearts would be longing to see you. Our hearts would long to see our Savior and to thank Him personally, to fall at His feet and worship Him for the very salvation that only He could make possible. My Father, this time, during this time, may we remember fondly, with great gratitude, the death of our Savior. But in that same moment, Father, with great excitement and expectancy, may we look forward to the return of our Savior. Father, bless each one tonight. May this be a sweet time of fellowship with you and as a church together. We love you so very much. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. I'll ask the deacons who have helped me to serve, to make their way forward. As they do, I would just encourage you from 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, what Paul wrote to the church there. He said this, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Contextually, the Paul was uh, uh, encouraging the church not to enter into it lightly certainly to make sure that there's no sin between us and our God and our Savior, to make sure that uh, we are saved, number one, that all is right between us and our God. Certainly, this is primarily for the members of Foster Baptist Church, but if you're a visitor, you're more than welcome to partake if all is right between you and your God. Likewise, I would encourage you that uh, you make sure that your heart is free of the guilt and condemnation of current, present sin, that all is confessed that not only would we not eat and drink unworthily because we're not of the household of faith, but also because there's something between us and God. God would have us to first remove that and then come into His presence in such a way as this. Parents, could I encourage you to help your children and, uh, in such? And, and I trust that as we hand out the bread, that you and I will use as a time to reflect upon the grand sacrifice. The lessons we've learned have been reminded of even from Calvary in a time of confession, of exaltation and gratitude, expression of gratitude in this time. Bow our heads. We'll hand out the bread at this time. Paul wrote to the church, he said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. ask Brother Jeremy to word our prayer for the bread this evening. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we just thank you for an opportunity to come here as fellow believers and to come and worship you tonight, Lord. We thank you for that de- determined divine determination, Lord, you had as your body was being uh, beaten and bruised for us, Lord. We're not worthy for what you've done for us. And, Lord, we just pray for this uh, bread as we partake, that as we think about what you've done for us, Lord. I pray you'd bless it to, to us tonight. In your name, amen. Amen. Let's eat together. Paul would continue, he said, After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. I have said it before, I'll say it again. I'm looking forward to the day. When we will no longer do this ordinance, but we will be in the presence of the very one who the bread and the cup represents, his return. Yet until that happens, we do this to show that our Savior died. He was buried. He rose again to bring us new life. I ask Brother Doug to word the prayer for the cup this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for another day that we could come and, and remember what you did for us, Lord, and how you gave so preciously to us, Lord, the people that do not deserve it, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for the blood that was shed, Lord, and we just pray that uh, as we uh, remember this, Lord, that we would uh, continuously think about what uh, what you did for us, and we didn't deserve it, Lord, but you give it to us freely, Lord, and Lord, may we give you the honor and glory for us in Christ's name we pray, Amen. Amen. Let us drink together. I'd invite you to join me in standing, and uh, we'll close our service with a hymn, much as the disciples did that evening, uh, according to Matthew chapter 26. We'll sing hymn number 187, a, a great song, great reality to what we just observed and the fact that this is the tie that binds. Uh, there's no greater thing that binds any group of people together more so than our relationship to Jesus Christ. There's nothing that unites us like the reality that you and I are in the family of God. So we sing together knowing that one day we'll be in heaven and we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb in his presence. We look forward to that day. Thank you for coming